Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. There are some uh, announcements in the bulletin in the program. I'm not going to highlight them today. If you want to um, hear about some really cool stuff coming up from Dressember um, and, and a bunch of stuff, uh, look at that. Officially, I want to welcome you to Parents Weekend. Um, it's really cool. How many, how many parents do we have here? Like, you don't normally come here, but you're visiting, and it's just so good to have you. Um, I love that you're here, and I love that we can share the weekend with you. And I want to thank you. Um, your kids are a joy. Uh, it has been, for the two-plus years that now that I've been here, I've been blessed by your kids um, and by this church in general, your kids specifically, and this church in general. I love, I love being here, and I love the relationships that we get to have together. So I thank you for the job that you've done as parents um, and for the, for the job that you continue to do at nurturing and pouring in even adult kids. But they still need parents, right? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Anybody ever heard the phrase, Asalaamu Alaikum? Anybody familiar with that? It's an Arabic phrase. Um, and it means, may peace be with you. When Julie and I went to Senegal last year, that was a phrase that we needed to learn from the time that we touched down in Dakar, the capital of Senegal in West Africa, and then all through the roads into like a Madison-sized city called Chess, and then out into the bush, you pass people, you would hear Asalam Malakum, and you could either go like, yes, whatever, or you could... Uh, learn to repeat, uh, repeat back the phrase uh, in their language to say, yes, peace also to you. So that's an Arabic phrase. When we went into the village, um, Africa has multiple languages going on, and Senegal even has multiple languages going on. So there's Arabic, which is kind of overall. It was a French colony, so lots of people speak French, especially in the cities. The Wolof tribe is the biggest tribe in Senegal. And uh, they have their own language. And the, the village that we got to spend our time in, Godel, is a Serer village. And in Godel, you can use Asalam Malakum uh, as, as a greeting of peace. But in their language, if you want to get into it, you hear people saying, Jamsom, Jamsom. And if you don't know any other language, all you do is you just keep repeating Jamsom, Jamsom. And they're so wonderful, they just laugh at you. They're like, thank you, peace, peace, peace. All I've got is peace for you. And you just keep repeating it. It is the number one value of the country. And it's the number one value of the people in Godel, in the village that we've, uh, that we've gone to, peace. We value peace. We greet each other with peace. Instead of walking by and saying, hey, man, or like, have a good day, they'll say, I... I hope peace for you. If it's God's will, I want, you to, I want you to live in peace. And we come at it from a little bit of different perspective, right? Knowing the Prince of Peace. Knowing the one who's really able to provide peace. Not just, not just um, a ceasefire or a lack of conflict, but true internal peace, right? And the one who's like um, on the path to someday peace being fully realized. So it, it changes a little bit uh, the greeting. We're, gonna, we're going to um, jump into peace today. This is the last week in the series that we've called I Am, taking a look at the nature and character of God through the names that he has, um, most specifically in the Old Testament, that we recognize in the Bible somebody's name was attached to their character. So often somebody would be given a name at birth that the parents were hoping would, uh, would become real in their life. Sometimes that was true, and then people have these radical changes where sometimes God shows up in their life and he'll actually change their name to more reflect uh, the character that he wants to see in them. And sometimes, often I think actually, God does this in a way of not reflecting what is, but what will be, right? 
He calls people by names that they are not yet. And we'll see that even today. But in, in terms of God, God's names don't reveal a whole bunch of different gods or a schizophrenic God. What they do is they reveal a God who has multiple character attributes, multiple facets by which we can look at him and recognize how big and how wonderful God really is. And so we started the series looking at Elohim. Like in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, this mighty one, the, the one who could create out of nothing. And when we see Elohim, we worship, right? That's, that's our response. We turned into the holy God, the God who is altogether different from us, that we are not buddy-buddy, we are not on the same plane, that he is completely different, that he is uh, perfect in everything. And when we look at him, we recognize how imperfect we are. And yet, at the same time, that's not something that, um, that he's content to leave as a division. In his next name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, the I Am, He's actually revealing, I am God who is with you. So while he's big and magnificent and powerful and holy, he also desires to be with us. And we get the makings of a God who is um, different and with, who's holy and who's compassionate, who's full of justice, but also full of mercy. And is wonderful, I think, to be able to look into the character qualities of God my desire in this series first as an application is to say when we look at the nature and character of God, our first response is worship. Our first response is just, just see God and let that be enough. And then to say, God, when I see you and when I worship you, I also, I also get to see myself in your image. If we're created in the image of God, we're image bearers of God. That means that some of these attributes are true for us, right? There are some attributes of God that we can never attain to fully, at least not on our own, and that there are some that he calls us, I want you to be like this because I'm like this, right? And he's calling us into himself. So we get to talk about Jehovah Shalom, or the Lord is peace today. It shows up in the book of Judges and in a character of Gideon. If you know Gideon's story, um, he's a guy in turmoil. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is it doesn't just set up cookie-cutter heroes that are just, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. In the Bible, God shows us flawed people who he uses, right? I've heard the statement, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines, and that's true all through the pages of the Bible. So Gideon isn't perfect. We'll see that really clearly. And yet God is speaking into his life about who God is and how about who he calls us uh, to be. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Judges 6. That's where we see Gideon's story. We'll also put it up on the screen if you prefer to look at it that way. I want to read an extended passage today because it's narrative, because it tells the story and then we'll unpack and we'll jump off from there. We'll read the first 10 verses first in Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord to help, cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall, fear the, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. If you've studied the book of Judges before, you're going to recognize uh, this image that I'm going to throw up on the screen. The book of Judges, all throughout the book of Judges, you get to see the cycle of sin and brokenness showing up. And so the people are walking with God, and uh, for one reason or another, they disobey, they rebel, they sin against God, and the sin leads them uh, into punishment, into discipline, sometimes at God's hands, sometimes at the hand of uh, enemy nations, sometimes it's from within their camp, right? So sin and rebellion lead to discipline and punishment. That then leads to repentance. When people are broken, when they get to the bottom of the bottom, they call out to God, and God sends deliverance. And then the pattern happens again. So they're delivered, they're walking with God, and then sooner or later through the book of Judges, it's, just, it's a really depressing book when you're like, why don't you get it? Walk with God, get real confident, get real lazy, rebel. Enter into sin, feel the consequences of sin, get broken by it, repent, say, God, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need you. And he says, I'll deliver you again. You get to see the patience of God, but also not the, I will not save you from trouble, right? You will experience the consequences of sin. Otherwise, otherwise, why not just go and do it? Why repent? If you can sin and it causes no consequences, have at it. The truth is, sin always has consequences. Sin, I think, is its own consequence, the way that it gets into you, the way that it changes who you are, the way that it makes you into a different person, it has its own consequences, even if you never get caught. But the people through the book of Judges get caught a lot. And then you get this cycle of judges who are uh, a sign of God's deliverance for them, often judging, not like sitting in a court saying, mm, I think you're right and you need to pay, but they're judging the oppressors, they're judging the people who have come upon Israel and they're, uh, they work as, like, to bring freedom uh, to this place as, as a way of God's deliverance. This is, this is the cycle that we see all throughout it. And you see it here, even in 6.1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a phrase that happens all through the book of Judges. And God says, you've called to me, but you haven't obeyed me. And there's a problem, right? But he doesn't leave them there. In the very next verse, verse 11, now we get to the story of Gideon. So it's so bad. I, I mean, it's so bad that they're living in the caves, right? They don't have houses anymore. Those houses have been burned down. They don't have crops because every time they plant fields, the, the locusts of people come in trample the fields, eat whatever they find, kill all their livestock. They just, they have, they're just refugees. They're nomads. They're living in the caves, and they're hiding out. And God shows up in that in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiruzite, while his son Gideon, Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, this is actually kind of funny. I mean, in a sad, sad way. Okay? Where is Gideon and what is he doing right as the Lord shows up? It says, he's beating out wheat in the wine press. That should jump out to us because it's wheat in a wine press. You would normally press grapes in a wine press, right? But it's so hard for them at this time, 
and they're living in such fear that he's like, I just need some bread. And the only way that I can get it is to hide it as if I'm doing this other thing. And I'm living in fear. And then God shows up, and what does he call him? He calls him a mighty warrior. He calls him a man of valor. This is actually a name of God, right? In uh, Isaiah 9, 6, when it talks about Jesus coming, the mighty God is El Gabor. And this is what God calls Gideon. He calls him a Gabor. He calls him a champion. He calls him a, a mighty warrior, like God is himself. Uh, this is exactly what I mean when I say God calls people by the names they have not yet become. Gideon is not yet a mighty warrior. He's living in fear. He's, limit, he's living uh, timid. In, in a lot of ways, he's a coward. Okay? Understandably so, but this is not who he is yet. And God shows up and he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So who is Gideon saying is at fault here? Yeah, he's saying God's at fault for where we're at right now. Like if God's with us, then why is all this stuff happening? You say that, God, but I don't see the results. What have you done for me lately? Which is just irony, isn't it? The people run away from God. They, they work themselves into a mess. When they feel the mess and God shows up and says, hey, I'm still here. They're like, yeah, thanks a lot. We're in a mess now. Where have you been? And it's, but I think we do that. I think we do that. I think we walk away from God. We get in a mess. And then God shows up and says, I'm here. And we say, yeah, I'm not sure I believe it. Because look around. Verse 14 says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my, uh, my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Do you, do you see any similarities in stories that have come before up until this point where God shows up and says, I'm going to send you to do something and somebody has like a, a less than yes reaction, right? God shows up in Abraham's life in Genesis 12 and says, I want you to go to the land I'm showing you. And Abraham says, yes. God shows up in Genesis 22 and says, Abraham, now I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to go and sacrifice. And Abraham says, yes. But the story keeps going and God shows up in Moses' life, right? He says, I want you to go to your enemy, and tell them to let my people go. And Moses is like, uh, please no. Five times, right? Five times. And then God shows up again in the story of Joshua, right there in Joshua 1. And he says, I want you to go into all the land that I'm giving you. Do not be afraid. Be courageous. And Joshua does. God is being consistent here. People have inconsistent responses to God. And Gideon, it kind of resembles Moses here. Please, I don't think I'm man enough to do this. I come from a very, the weakest family, and yet if you read further past what we do today, he's got enough that when he goes and sneaks out at night to follow one of God's commands to him because he's scared, he takes 10 servants. So he's like weak, but he's like not weak enough to have 10 servants. He's got 10 servants in his household, that he can say, hey, come along. It's an excuse that he's saying, 
I don't want to do what you want me to do. So give me a sign. And he puts God on the hot seat and he says, I demand that you give me something that I can touch, something that I can grab. Prove it to me that I should follow you. And Gideon almost is switching places with God, right? God, you submit to me, and then I'll submit to you. And God does. God humors him. God says, all right, I'll see what you got. I'll wait. And Gideon goes in, it says, and he prepares something like he doesn't even know what he's doing. He comes out and he presents it to God, and God says, watch this, kind of touches it, the rock that is holding this present, the offering now, uh, flies up with flame, burns it, and Gideon is like, all right, I'm not sure I saw that coming. Right? And the further you read in Gideon's story, he keeps on doing this. He keeps on doing this. So you, you may have grown up, I grew up, like the success story of Gideon going from this huge army and dwindling down to the little army and saying, what courage. That's wonderful. But to get there was not courageous. To get there was whining. To get there was bargaining with God, was putting himself in a place with God that he should not have been. And yet God, in mercy, says, I'll stick with you here. I'll stick with you. It says in verse 19, So Gideon went into the house prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from, the, from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it still stands at Apfra, which belongs to the Abizrazite. So, this name Yahweh Shalom or Jehovah Shalom comes from this statement of the altar that Gideon builds for God and calls it, the Lord is peace. And he says, I've seen God face to face now. I'm getting a picture that maybe I was a little bit audacious standing in front of God Almighty. Maybe I was a little bit audacious and I fear that I could die and God shows up and says, don't be afraid. Peace. Peace. Only peace. And Gideon says, I'm going to build an altar to the Lord for he, he is peace. This word shalom that we translate peace is really big. This is one of the mega themes of the Bible. Shalom means well-being or tranquility, prosperity, security, harmony, balance, alignment. Is like the world is right. And it's not simply absence of turmoil. Like when the war ends, now we have peace. This is thriving, right? Not just the absence of fighting, thriving. You may notice this in families or in marriages. It's one thing to not fight. It's another thing to be one, right? It's one thing to not be screaming at another, at the other person, but it's a completely different thing to be one together in marriage. This is true shalom. The other kind of peace is just absence of conflict. And what God is always after is the deeper is the fuller, is the real and the substantive peace. It's no accident that Jerusalem means the city of peace, right? When God establishes his capital, he says, I want you to live in a place of peace. 
And we're told in Revelation that someday there will be a new Jerusalem. There's a new city of peace. So we're on the road. We are on the road to one day God fully, completely establishing his peace again in the way that it was before sin entered the world. He is on a restoration mission. And one day we get to experience a world unbroken. One day we get to be citizens in that place. And yet, even now, because of Jesus, we get, to, uh, we get the foretastes of that, right? We get the whisperings and the inklings of what is coming. Jesus said, I've come to bring you peace, and it's already here. Even though the world doesn't reflect it, it can already be yours. What I want you to do right now... Um, don't be afraid because I'm not going to come and do anything scary and I'm not going to point you out, but I'd like you to, to close your eyes. And uh, what I want you to do in your head is I want you to picture, I want you to paint a picture of peace in your head. And I'd be curious, although I just said I wouldn't embarrass any of you, I'd be curious to know what that picture looks like. I think for lots of people, calm water is in the picture. Maybe a, a perfect, calm, tropical beach. Maybe it's a crackling fire. Maybe for you it's a hammock, like it would be for me, a special place that you go. Uh, this is a place of peace for you. I want you to open your eyes, and I want you to look at one artist's rendering when given the task of painting peace. This is what this artist came up with. And I don't know if you can see all the detail in it. There's kind of on the left side in the middle, there's lightning going on. The water from the waterfall is actually blowing. Uh, So it's like there's a storm in the midst. This does not look like peace. And yet something is going on. Can you go to the next slide? Right there is a bird nestled in in kind of a crag in the cliff. All around, all around is storm. All around is lightning and wind and danger. And yet in this little place, the bird is experiencing peace. Now go back out again. Can you see the peace now? This is the peace I think that Jesus offers today. Someday the storm is gone and we get to experience wholeness. Today, in the already not yet, today Jesus offers peace that is not dependent upon circumstances, that is peace in the storm, peace in the turmoil, peace in the danger. If you have peace when, when things are all right around you, great. I mean, you're just kind of like a, uh, a thermometer for what's going on around you, right? If you have peace in the midst of chaos, you get to actually be a thermostat. You get to actually look different. You could actually set a different temperature for what is going around to say, no matter what is happening, I have peace inside. Tony Evans writes, being at peace doesn't mean being calm when everything else is calm. When all is calm, you're supposed to be calm. Being at peace means you're at rest even when everything else is seems to be all wrong. So with Jesus as our Prince of Peace, he shows up there in Isaiah 9, 6 to say, uh, he, will be, he will be the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. It's this same word, this wholeness and fullness and tranquility and prosperity. Jesus is the Prince of Peace that is coming. In John 13, uh, 16, 33, he said, I've said these things that in me you may have peace. And he echoes the bird in the picture. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take, take heart, I have overcome the world. If you want peace, hear the invitation and the challenge of Jesus. Jump back a few chapters to John 14, and you hear him saying, as he, this is the last night of his life. This is 
um, depending upon where you put him in John at right in this moment, he's either finishing up the Last Supper or he's already in the garden with his, uh, with his followers. And, and this, is, this is where Jesus is like praying and capillaries are bursting and he's like sweating blood, right? That's not a picture of peace. And yet right before that happens in John 14, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then he heads into the most excruciating time anybody could imagine. And yet, I think Jesus is full of integrity. So even in sweating blood, even in uh, his spirit being troubled, I think he's still got peace at his core. And that's what he's giving. That says, peace no matter the circumstances. You can be on your road to being martyred. And you can have peace. Right between John 14 and John 16 is what? It's John 15. Right? Good. (laughs) On that. And Jesus says something, I think, that kind of like bookend these statements. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Don't be afraid. And then he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. I want you to have peace. Right in between those two statements is John 15, and it's beautiful. And he says, I, I am the vine. My father is the gardener. And I want you to live with us. I want you to abide. Apart from me, you can do nothing but you get to stay connected. The reason we can have peace is not just because God says so, but because God reaches out and pulls us into him. Jesus came that we could get grafted into the vine. Think of a branch that's just kind of on the ground, dying because it's not attached to a life source, and it gets grafted in and starts growing. That's us miraculously, that's us. If you want the peace that Jesus talks about in John 14 and John 16, look in the middle there in John 15, and it's about abiding. It's about how are you living with Jesus, life with God. And, and to this I would say, if you want peace, don't aim for peace. If you want peace, aim for the Prince of Peace. Because I think we can take the gifts of God and turn them into idols. I think we can take the gifts of God and turn them into the end game. So that what we really want is this thing. What I really want is peace. And that, that's a good starting point. I think you're being honest with that. But if that's all we ever chase, I think we miss Jesus. And we just get a vending machine. Like God exists to give me good stuff. Which he does. Like he does give us good stuff. But that's not all that God is, right? If you want peace, aim at the Prince of Peace. And I, don't, I think you will not be disappointed with that. If you go out looking for peace, I think you'll search long and hard and probably come up empty. Even if you claim to find it in Jesus, and you're, you're not really interested in Jesus, you're interested only in what he can give you, I think you'll still come up flailing, I had a conversation with a really sharp young man yesterday who grew up in church, knew all of the answers, performed really well, grew up in my student ministry, went off to college, and then started saying, I don't know if this has ever been mine. I think I've just been parroting my parents' faith. And I was performing and knowing the right answers. And, and I think he was putting something in place of Jesus. Like you can know that God is the God of peace in your head. And somehow that can mistranslate into your heart. You can miss the God of peace even while knowing about him, right? Even while saying, yep, I got that. I learned that in third grade. This is not new to me. It doesn't need to be new to you. It needs to be real to you. This is not something that is just information. This is something at the core of who you are. 
Do you know Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Aim for Jesus. We get a picture of this in Peter when he's on the boat, right? And Jesus comes up at night and Peter's like, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And as long as Peter's eyes are on Jesus, the wind and the waves do not affect him. Peter's at peace and he's doing something that only one other person in history has done. He's walking on water. But the minute he takes his eyes off Jesus, the minute he loses that connection, he sees the wind and he sees the waves and he says, what in the world am I doing? I can't possibly do this. And he doesn't anymore. He sinks. And Jesus says, why do you doubt? And I really do think it's not about Peter doubting Jesus. It's about Peter doubting what Jesus can do in Peter. Right? It's not really about Peter doubting Jesus' power because he calls Jesus and said, help me, pull me up. Like, you're standing there. You're good. He doubts what Jesus can do in his life. And I don't know if that's you, but I want you to hear Jesus saying, reach out. Like, I'm here, I'm good, and I've got you. You've got to take my hand. I want to do this together. I'm not going to force it on you. If we see, if we see God as the Lord of peace, if we see God as the one who is able, who is at peace within himself and is able to give us peace, is able to offer peace, and is on a trajectory that says we can't screw it up. Someday peace. Someday it will happen. It's on the way. It's coming, right? If we see God in that light, I have two applications and maybe I'll lie and sneak in a third. The first one is passive. The, per- the first one, if we know the God of peace first, we can receive that peace. Again, this doesn't have to blow your mind. This doesn't have to be new to you. It just has to be real to you and to me. I think the cycle of sin that we see in Judges, from sin and rebellion to consequences and brokenness to repentance to deliverance, I think we can do that in our own life, except I don't think it has to be a cycle of sin. I think it can be a path towards shalom. Right? And I would say the sin, brokenness, repentance, deliverance can be the acceptance of an invitation to do life with God. Where all of those are true in our life, and yet he says, I'm with you. You don't have to do this alone. I'm with you. And Jesus, Jesus makes the difference. Without Jesus, our cycle, I think, is just the same as in Judges. Without Jesus, our cycle is the same as in Judges. You may need this morning. Like, I don't know what you're going through. I get to talk with some of you, and I get a taste. I get a little piece But maybe this morning, what you need most is to hear the invitation of Jesus. They say, you don't have to do this alone. My peace I give to you. And all I want from you is for you to abide. All I want from you is for you to live with me, to do life with me. And when you do life with Jesus, when you receive that, and when you keep him there, he starts to He starts to change your very heart. And I will tell you that I need this personally. Like, yesterday wasn't a good day for me as far as peace goes. And I think my family felt the consequences, if I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, there is not a day that goes by that I don't need peace personally. And my family doesn't need Jesus' peace in my life and I can pass on to them. But when, when the turmoil gets inside, like brokenness happens. So if you feel broken, and maybe you don't feel smashed, maybe like just completely decimated, but if you feel like there's, this, there's brokenness in me, then I want you to hear the invitation of Jesus that you don't have to do it alone that his peace can be there with you. 
Shalom is more than just a state of mind, and it's more than something we receive. So this, this then goes into the second application. We can receive his peace, but then if you look at the Old Testament verbs that are connected to this word shalom, connected to peace, you get, I want you to have peace, I want you to seek peace, I want you to make peace, and I want you to give peace. Those are just some of the verbs that show up associated with shalom. I want you to have, I want you to seek, I want you to make, and I want you to give peace. So the second application is if we have received the peace of Jesus, if we're living in a state of shalom, then we get to be peacemakers. We get to be peace givers. We get to be peace seekers. This is something that we give away. Like the little bird, I mean, talk about being a thermostat. We don't have to accept the current state of the world and the turmoil all around us. We get to actually be difference. And God is holy and he is different than the world is and we're so glad for that. But he gets in our life and we get to be holy because we have peace and then we get to pass on that peace to others. We become peacemakers. And so this is the invitation and the challenge, right? This is the relationship and then the responsibility that follows. That if you're living in relationship with Jesus and you have the peace of Jesus, now you're responsible to pass that on to others. Now you're responsible to be, a, to be a person of peace that will give that to other people who desperately need it. And maybe you need it with them in your relationships. So let's walk through kind of that cycle and say if you're looking for real, tangible, grabbable action points, I want you to take note of this and I want you to try this out this week in your relationships with others. I want you to look for discord. I want you to look for a lack of thriving. What is not right? And that's not just, you know, being a Debbie Downer. That's saying, I want to I address what's real. I want to see reality because then I can face into it. Like, if there's a lack of thriving in your marriage or if there's a lack of unity in relationships at work, or with your kids, I want you to look at relationships in your life and I want you to identify something is wrong here and that's the start of healing. That's the start of peace, to recognize that things are not there. I want you to identify it. And even if you don't get it, even if you're like, I think there's something going on here, then I want you to go on a listening campaign. Then I want you to ask about it. Because you might be right and you might be onto something and you might be off. Like I just did this this morning with somebody where I texted him and I was like, hey, like, have I offended you? Are we good? He's like, no offense, we're good. Great, I don't need to dwell on it. I'm going to pass it off. I got a sniff of something and I'm, I'm going to trust that you're honest with me, right? But go on a listening campaign to seek out what is and seek I would say as much as you can, this goes against who I am naturally, but don't be defensive while you're hunting this out. Defensiveness kills understanding. You start to defend yourself rather than trying to understand what's actually going on. So if you notice discord, listen. And uh, if you need to repent, if you need to change your mind about something, if you need to turn around from how you've been doing it, Matthew 5.23 actually says, if you're there presenting your offering and you know that your brother has something against you, leave your offering right there. It's not going to go anywhere. And go deal with it. Go deal. Don't let it build up. Go address it. Is something going on? And you might get, <laughs> is something going on? Of course something's going on. Where have you been? Or you might get, yes, there is something. You might get a much more tempered response. Or you might get a, no, no, we good? Are you good? Because is, is this weird now? You might get any one of those responses. And I think they're all good because you're trying, to, you're trying to step into something. Don't let the response take you away from trying to, to get at this. If there's discord and you can identify it, then you can move toward repentance and you can move toward forgiveness. If somebody has hurt you and you get a chance to talk about it, 
you, you have a chance for reconciliation. The opportunity isn't there to just say, you were wrong, and I win. Right? The opportunity is there to say, you hurt me, but I've been forgiven much, so I forgive much. Two verses that I love, that I, I think speak the world to forgiveness. First is 1 Peter 4, 8. That just simply says, love covers over a multitude of sins. That means if somebody sins against you, you don't have to make a list and, and say, hey, the next time we talk, can I talk about the five offenses? Just real quick, we can move on. Like, we don't have to talk a long time, but like, we'll have a talk and then we're good, right? Love covers over a multitude of sins. That means if it's not a big deal and you can really get over it and you don't need a direct conversation about it, then I think let it go. Like forgiveness is real. But if not, if it's a more serious offense or if it's about their character and they need help in growing in this way or if it's about you having deep processed hurt that you can't let go on until it's addressed, then Matthew 18 speaks to this, where in Matthew 18, 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, if somebody sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won the argument. That's actually not what it says. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother back, right? Because the point is reconciliation not winning. Now, this is great because I think Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother. And earlier said, if you're offering your gift and you know your brother has, uh, you know that he's offended by you, you go. So who's supposed to initiate? The one who has offended or the one who has been offended? Yes. Right? The one who it's bugging the one who it's bugging. If you offended somebody and it's bugging you, go talk about it. If somebody offended you and it's bugging you, go talk about it. This world is not good at conflict resolution, and I don't know that the church is a whole lot better. But we don't have to stay that way. The Prince of Peace is with us and can help us make peace in conflict, in turmoil. So, Look for discord, listen, look for repentance if you need to change, and then walk out the road of forgiveness, which is going to mean often having a conversation. And then reconciliation follows. This is the path to shalom in relationships. And here's the downside. Don't get paranoid. So, I don't know if any of you have done any work with the Enneagram. Uh, it's kind of this, another one of those personality profiles, nine different types, and it's got you know, people all around the spectrum. I come in in the Enneagram listed as a peacemaker. In my darker moments, peacemakers are codependent. In my darker moments, peacemakers are not okay if not everything else is okay right? I want everything else to be okay, and that will make me feel fine. That's not me operating in maturity and strength. A mature peacemaker says, even though everything else is in turmoil, I will be an agent of peace, right? So as you're seeking peace, as you're seeking reconciliation with people, don't start to get paranoid thinking, oh, shoot, I offended something. It's all broken. I'm condemned. Shame. That's not going to help you. Don't get paranoid and don't live in fear. Live in confidence that you will screw up. And so will others. And we have a Prince of Peace who's already done everything to take the divided and put them back together. Already done everything. Jesus has already already won the battle he offers peace and he offers now to make us peacemakers we became we become agents of peace shalom is wholeness 
And we wait for the time when God makes all things whole again. And until then, Philippians 1.6 is true, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That he who began a work of peace in you will carry it on to completion. I'm excited to go back to Senegal in February this year. And my prayer every time I meet somebody, every time I get to say, Assalamu alaikum, jamsom, is that they would know peace, but that they would know the peace that only Jesus offers. True peace and true shalom in themselves and in their relationships. May that be true for us as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your patience. I thank you that you don't leave us broken. We rebel more than we know. And sometimes we just wander away. And we find ourselves not living in a state of peace. And you're not content to leave us there. You are the God of peace who shows up in our life when we don't deserve it. And you love us. You come for us. And you grant us a peace in the midst of brokenness. I pray right now in this room, I pray that you would help us receive your peace. I pray that you'd speak to the broken parts inside, to the the parts of us that are living in turmoil, the parts of us that feel broken, the parts of us that are not at peace as you have for us. And I pray that you'd move us toward healing. I pray that you'd move us toward your peace. Help us to see you, Jesus, to reach for you. And help us to become peacemakers, to live as light in this world, giving your peace away as freely as we can to people who desperately need it and maybe don't even know. We thank you for this, this morning. We thank you for who you are and who you call us to be. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.